of March Madness, and if Glenn Massey were still here, I'd have to tell you what that is. Uh, what little boy has not been shooting basketball, dream, dreaming of making the last winning shot? Our, our house was on a street that, that, that kind of came down the hill and dead-ended into a little, little cul-de-sac. There were no houses built on that little circle uh, yet, so, so we actually cut down a tree put it in a hole, and nailed a piece of plywood to it, hung a rim, and voila, basketball goal. Now, now later, there was a bit of a problem because that trunk, it was a sweet gum tree. For those of you who know what that is, you can't kill those things. And the trunk, that trunk that we cut down actually began to grow branches. We kept having to cut, it all, cut them down from around that plywood backboard. But I can remember going out there and shooting for hours. I can remember being... At about the free throw line, this was before there was a three-point line, at about the free throw line, which was scratched into the asphalt with a rock, and, and, and going, three, two, one, and then I'd run, get it, and then I'd go, three, two, and then eventually I'd finally make one and hop around like I had just won the game. Of course, I was always imagining that I was some great basketball player, you know, usually Jerry West. Mr. Mr. Clutch, you can read about him in the history books. You see, kids are always wanting to be like their favorite sports superstar, if you play sports. Just want to point out, not, not many video game superstars that you dream about being, just saying. Of course, at one point, everyone wanted to be like Mike. They even made that song in the commercials about it. So since some of you are like me and wanted to be like Mike or, or, or maybe some great sports star, I found some stuff that, that may be of, of interest um, to you. A sports website that I frequent listed the top 100 dumbest things said in sports. I'm not going to read all 100 of them, although they are worth reading. I tried to pick out a few. Consider the following as you seek to follow these guys. Now, this guy's not a sports but, uh, guy, but ESPN analyst Lee Corso once said of the University of Hawaii, Hawaii doesn't win many games in the United States. Hmm. Former NBA player Caldwell Jones was once asked what his favorite seafood was. He responded, saltwater taffy. Ohio State backup quarterback Cardell Jones recently tweeted, why should we go to class if we came here to play football? We ain't come to play school. Classes are pointless. You might want to reconsider. Former NBA great Dennis Rodman, chemistry is a class you take in high school or college where you figure out two plus two is ten or something. Boxing trainer Lou Duva once said of boxing, you can sum up this sport in three words. You never know. Or, or two words. I, yeah, I, said, I read it wrong, didn't I? Yeah. I was trying to fix him. I'm trying to help him. <laughs> Dutch soccer manager Rude Gullet or Goulet or whatever, however you said his name, said after game once, we must have had 99% of the match. It was the other 3% that cost us. 
I'm suggesting you don't let these guys do your taxes. Shaquille O'Neal once said of a sports writer, Sam is an idiot, I-D-O-U-T, idiot. <laughs> Terrell Owens, well, pretty much everything he says is quote-worthy, but he once said, don't say I don't get along with my teammates, I just don't get along with some of the guys on my team. Atlanta Braves, this one's my favorite, Atlanta Braves player Daryl Cheney was once asked how to keep the Braves on their toes. He responded, raise the urinals. That's kind of funny. <laughs> NFL receiver Chad Johnson, I think he's Ocho Cinco or something now, once said, I'm traveling to all 51 states to see who can stop number 85. NBA star Tracy McGrady said, my game was sputtering until I did a 360 and got headed in the right direction. <laughs> South Carolina running back and Heisman Trophy winner George Rogers said, I want to rush for 1,000 or 1,500 yards, whichever comes first. Like, you don't know? Former University of Houston wide receiver Torin Polk said of his coach, he treats us like men, he lets us wear earrings. <laughs> okay, and they're like, they're, that's 13. There's like 87 more that are worth reading. So maybe, just suggesting, maybe we don't want to be like these guys. Maybe there are others that we should seek to be like, others we uh, should follow. In fact, I'm going to suggest this morning that we ought to look around for committed believers and say, that's my superstar. That is who I want to follow. As we jump back into the book of Philippians this morning, that's what Paul actually encouraged us to do. Our text is found at the end of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 17 to 21 this morning. Read that with me. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Been a few weeks now since we've been in the book of Philippians. It's very important, critically important, that we remember the context of chapter 3. Because Paul started this chapter by warning the Philippians about some false teachers that we've today called Judaizers. These were Jewish believers, not really, who were saying that Jesus was good, but you also have to keep the law of Moses to be accepted by God, especially those laws dealing with circumcision and the Sabbath. And Paul clearly taught that to do that was to make Jesus of no value. You add anything to faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, and he told the Galatians, you actually fall from grace. 
here's the fact of the matter. We only contribute one thing to our salvation. And immediately, some of you are thinking, yeah, it's my faith. But, but, but Ephesians 2 tells us that even faith is a, is a gift from God. You didn't contribute faith. You contributed one thing to your salvation, and that is your sin. Your need for salvation. These guys were running around following in Paul's footsteps, mis- misleading new Gentile converts. Paul's a little upset with them because he calls them dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. They were proud of what they had accomplished. We, they were proud of their religious pedigrees, what they had contributed to their supposed salvation. So Paul says, listen, you want to you wanna compare and then he goes on to give his own religious resume, which actually was pretty impressive. But he summed all of his religious accomplishments up and counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, we saw then that he moved everything from the credit side of his spiritual balance sheet to the debit side. He had one thing on his credit side, and that was Jesus. He said, I count Everything is lost. Everything is rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Because when the time of judgment comes, I I want one thing. I want to be found in Christ and his righteousness. I don't want to be found in my supposed righteousness by keeping the law, which nobody can do anyway. And the last time we were together in Philippians... He said this, there is one thing that I do. There is one thing that is of supreme value to me. One thing that I want more than anything else. I I want to forget those things that are behind me to include those supposed spiritual accomplishments. And I want to reach forward with everything that I have. I want to stretch, lay myself out for, reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's it. I want to pursue an intimate knowledge of Christ. I want to know Him. That's it. The power of His resurrection so that I may also join Him in the fellowship of His suffering. We saw that one very important way to intimacy with Christ is gain through living with resurrection power. That's God's power in the midst of suffering. This is not meant to make us downcast. We find joy in knowing Christ that way. This was Paul's goal. goal. It was his singular pursuit. And you say, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that's Paul. It's the Apostle Paul. I mean, come on, Scott. He did start churches all over the place. He did write like half of the books of the New Testament. Of course, Paul is a spiritual giant. Paul is a spiritual superstar, exactly. And now Paul says, join in following my example. He's given his personal testimony of faith and life, and now he says, copy me. In fact, he then is going to draw a stark contrast between himself and those who chose a different way of life. Paul is actually bringing the Philippians and, frankly, us to a fork in the road. Listen, you need to decide. Either follow Christ or your own sinful desires. Live a Christ-centered life or a self 
self-centered life. He's calling us to a decision today. Give the outline as we jump into the text. He's going to say, here's one choice. You can follow my example. Others like me, verse 17. Then he's going to encourage us, don't follow their example. We'll talk about who they are in a minute. And then he says, follow me on this trip to heaven. Now, again, Paul has just finished his personal testimony. It, it, it took him the whole chapter. But, but really, he could have written his personal testimony in one word, right? Christ. For me, to live is Christ. That's it. And, and now he says, this is what I also want for you. Follow my example. Now, at first glance, this uh, can appear to look a little proud, you know, I want to be like me, um, qu quite opposite of the rest of the letter where he's been calling the Philippians to humility, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves, remember that? So, so what is this follow me stuff? Well, to follow Paul is to follow Christ. Because we remember that's the, 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 the one thing, the only thing that mattered to him was following Jesus. In everything that he did, he made a beeline for Christ. So to follow Paul was to head in the right direction. It is to head toward Christ. He told the Philippians, or excuse me, he told the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So Paul, I want you to think about this for just a second. I want this to sink in. Paul could confidently say, if you follow me, you will follow Jesus. Wow. Actually, very interesting word that Paul uses here. It's found nowhere else in the in the New Testament, it's not found in any Greek literature. Most people think he made it up. He literally says, become my sunmimites. Sunmimites literally means imitate together with me. Be my fellow imitator. Who was Paul imitating? Christ. So he is saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I want to be like Mike, give me a break. He says, I want to be like Jesus. That's it. But it's not just me. He says, I want you to look around and observe the pattern, this same pattern of life in others. I want you to observe the way they walk. We know that the word walk for Paul was this, describing how they lived. Look around and observe how others are walking or living. And if they are following our example, if they are pursuing Christ, then follow them too. And no doubt at this point, he had, uh, Paul had Timothy and Epaphroditus in mind. They were two of his co-workers who were following the example of Paul, who was following the example of Christ. We remember from chapter 2. They look not out for their own interests, but also the interests of others. He said of Timothy, I have nobody else like him, no, no one like him, who has, a, who has a genuine concern in your welfare. 
of Epaphroditus. He said, I mean, this guy was so committed to following Christ and doing what Christ wanted him to do, he almost died serving Jesus. So uh, look around and observe people like that and follow them too. The, The point is, this walk of the Christian life is one in which we find ourselves together. And as we together pursue one thing, this intimate knowledge of Jesus, which leads, by the way, to being like Jesus, we are all on the same path, right? We're all walking the same way. And the fact is, some of you are ahead of us in the journey. So Paul says, I want you to kind of look around And I want you to observe those around you. I want you to find somebody ahead of you that you can follow. Now, this begs, I think, some rather obvious questions. Ready? First, who in your life are you intentionally following because you know they are following Jesus? In other words, who is a spiritual superstar to you? Who is closer to Jesus on the journey? You see him up there. Jesus is, that's where we're going. So you can grab hold of them. And you can dream, I want to be like who? Who is seeking to be like Jesus that you want to be like? Listen. There are, people, I, there are people sitting all over this auditorium that fit that category. I don't want to embarrass them by calling their names, but I follow them. I want to be like them when I grow up. Which leads to the next question. Obviously, you're somewhere on the journey. You're somewhere on the path. And, and just like there are those ahead of you, there are also those behind you. So who is following you? Who are you intentionally, you you look back and and you see them on the path and you look back and you intentionally pour into them by saying, this is the way, let's go this way together. Who are you doing that with? Meaning to whom are you an example, which leads to the last question. If others follow you, let's say your children, for example, are you leading them to Christ Or is your path a little bit more meandering, a little bit more distracting? Could ask it this way. Do you want people behind you to follow your example? Now, before you play the humility card, oh, no, not me. People shouldn't follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So who is following you as you follow Christ? Are you leading them to Jesus. You can think of it this way. Do you want others behind you to have the same intimacy of relationship with Jesus that you have? What condition would the church of Christ be in if everyone was like you? Don't play the humility card. Paul did. He says, I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. I want you to look around and observe others and follow them as they follow Jesus. What condition would the church be in? 
enough of that. Paul encourages us to follow strong and positive examples of faith because secondly, there are those we should not follow, verses 18 and 19. Follow our walk, follow the way that we live because many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are, I know these are words, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. I can think of no more distressing, painful description than that, enemies of the cross. Now, the first question we have to ask is, who are these guys? Lots of discussion about that. But notice, Paul says when he thinks of them, it causes him to weep. By their current walking or living, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, don't miss the depth of that statement. They are enemies of God's eternal plan of salvation and the walk that the cross subsequently requires. You see, as we follow the cross, it requires that we pick up our cross and follow. But they're enemies of that. Now, certainly... These could be those who heard the gospel, rejected it, became enemies of the gospel. Could be those in Philippi who were persecuting the church. Could even be a reference to those that he mentions in the first uh, of this chapter. It could be those Judaizers. Most think that it's none of those because of the way Paul describes them, but we're going to see in a minute, plus this fact that he weeps about them. Most think, as do I, however difficult this is, that these are those who once believed, but had walked away. They had become apostates. They once professed faith, but now had walked away from faith and became enemies of the cross. You see, it appears that these people would have been well known to the Philippian church. It could be that that there are people outside of Philippi that Paul told them about, or it could be those who used to be with them, who walked with them, who even worshiped with them, but they had walked away, and in doing so, they had become enemies of the cross. Don't follow them. Here's the point Paul is making. <coughs> they came to a fort, that fork in the road that he is describing, and they made the wrong choice. Paul says they are no longer on the path, walking to Christ. To follow them is to be led away from Christ. Now, I think most of you know that it is my understanding that you cannot lose your salvation, that those who are genuinely born again, redeemed, rescued, saved, cannot become unborn, unredeemed, unrescued, unsaved, adopted, then unadopted. You can't, you can't do that. There's lots of verses. I'm not going to take the time to, to go into all of the verses that, 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 that prove that. I, I believe that very strongly. However... Scripture leaves open the possibility that people can make a profession of faith and then subsequently walk away. And I want to warn us about, I do not want to take away the warning of Scripture that you can make a profession of faith and then walk away. We remember the parable of the sower that Jesus told. Sower went out to sow some seeds. Some fell on the path. 
birds came and ate it. Some fell on the rocks, quickly sprouted, soon withered, no root. Some fell among the thorns. It also sprouted, but was then choked out by the weeds. Some fell on good soil, produced a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Disciples asked Jesus, what is the meaning of that parable? Jesus told them. The seed, he said, was the word of the kingdom, specifically the word of the gospel. When someone hears the gospel first and, and doesn't understand it, there's no penetration because of the hardness of heart, the evil one like the bird comes and snatches it away. No life. No conversion. The, the seed that fell on the rocky places gets a little tricky. This is like those who this is like the one who hears it and immediately receives it, makes a profession of faith with joy, but there's no real root. It's only temporary. And Jesus said, this is very interesting, when persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. That is likely one thing that was happening in Philippi. Seed that fell among the thorns are those who hear the word, but when the worries of this life, the worries, the worries of life, Things don't go the way we think they ought to go. Or the deceitfulness of wealth, people, spring up around us. This lifeless faith is choked out. Good seed fell on good soil, had root. He, is the, he or she is the one who hears and understands it, and it produces fruit. It's my understanding, not, not mine alone, but my understanding, that it's only the fourth seed, that that fell on good soil, which were truly believers. The rest had no lasting life, no lasting fruitfulness. I think that what Paul is talking about here in our passage are those who heard the word in Philippi, they received it, but when either persecution arose, this caused them to walk away, or sensuality around them became more important and it drew them away. Either way, they were not true believers with lasting root, and life. Now, why do I say, suggest that it was the thorns of life, of sinful sensuality that drew them away? Because of verse 19, where Paul gives a description of them. He says, first, their end is destruction. Very interesting. This is a play on words. End is the same uh, word that he used earlier when he talked about maturity or perfection. Their perfection, their end, their maturity is destruction. He's talking about their future, future eschatological destruction. I want to remind you that he's drawing a stark contrast. There's a fork in the road. There are those who, have, who are now enemies of the cross and this is where they're headed. They're not headed toward Christ. Their end is eternal destruction. Those who follow the cross, their end, he's going to now, he's going to in a moment describe in verses 20 and 21. Those who follow this upward call of God in Christ, glorious transformation. The fork in the road that he is describing is either destruction or transformation. Those are your two choices, particularly people who have heard the gospel. Next description Paul gives, their God is their belly. The thing that these people are pursuing now instead of Christ are their appetites. If you compare 
this language that Paul, that Paul uses elsewhere. We're not going to turn to those passages. He's talking about sinful, sensual, even sexual appetites. They find joy and glory in these sinful, sensual appetites. But in the end, he says, it is their shame. Their minds are set on, are, 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 excuse me, are not set on one thing. They are not set on the call of God in Christ Jesus. Their minds are set, he says, on earthly things, the cares of this life. For, for us, the deceitfulness of wealth and sensual desire, that describes America, has drawn them away. That brings us back to this very difficult question. If people follow you, to what are you leading them? They follow you. Paul is saying, don't follow them because this is their end, their goal line, where they're going is destruction. Where are you leading them? Sexual, sensual, sinful pursuits? Are you leading them to the stuff of life, wealth, and care, and and fun, and, and pleasure? Or are you leading them to Christ? This is the fork. Brings the last point. Paul reminds us that we are not to pursue earthly things which only lead to destruction. We We don't belong on that path. We don't belong, in fact, here. So let's follow him. Let's follow each other to heaven. Verses 20 and 21. For, he says, we're not following them. Our citizenship is in heaven. We don't even belong here. Why are we focusing on stuff here? Our citizenship is in heaven. This would have been a serious wake-up call for the Philippians and, frankly, us. We remember that Philippi was a Roman colony. Its inhabitants were considered Roman citizens, of which they were very proud. Philippi was actually considered Roman soil. There was a strong allegiance to Rome even to the Roman emperor, the Caesar. So when Paul says, our citizenship is not here, that was almost treasonous. This would have gotten their attention. We have another citizenship, a heavenly citizenship. We belong somewhere else. Why are you focusing on stuff here? Remember the theme verse of this book, back in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we looked at the word conduct yourselves. It's actually one word in the Greek, which literally means live as citizens. Conduct yourselves. Live as citizens, same root word, of the gospel. We are citizens of heaven. This place is not our home. We should live like it. We should live like we are headed somewhere else, and we need to encourage each other on the way. Don't look at that. Don't be distracted by those things, by earthly things. Don't be distracted by sensual, sexual desires. Don't be distracted by the deceitfulness of wealth. This is where we're going. Since we're citizens of heaven, again, we don't set our mind on earthly things. We keep our eyes fixed on heaven. We keep looking up where we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This also was meant to be a slap to shock the Philippians to attention because Caesar was seen, they actually use this phrase, he was the Savior of the world. Can you believe that? 
He even carried the title Lord. He was Lord Caesar. Paul says, are you kidding me? He's just a puny earthly potentate. We are looking for the Savior. We're looking for the Lord. He's coming from heaven, and his name is Jesus. When he comes, verse 21, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the glory, uh, uh, with the body of his glory. Notice the contrast. It's intentional. Their glory is actually their shame. Our glory, well, we're waiting for it. Jesus is going to transform us by the exertion of the power that he himself has to subject all things to himself. We remember he's Lord. He is the power to make everything in the universe subject to him. When we remember the Christ hymn in chapter 2, God has given him a new name. That name is Lord. God has highly exalted him. So that at the name of Lord Jesus, every knee will bow. Doesn't matter where that knee is. Doesn't matter whether it's in heaven. Doesn't matter if it's on the earth or under the earth. That means hell. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He will ultimately subject all things to himself. Now, Paul says Jesus is going to use that same power that he subjects the entire universe. That's that's a fair degree of power. He's using that same power to transform our lowly, humble, earthly bodies into conformity with his glorious heavenly body. What will that look like? We're going to be, these bodies, you can be thankful, will be transformed to be like his glorious heavenly body. What will that look like? Not exactly sure. Are we all going to be 33? Don't know. Are we all going to be at the age that we were when we died? Hope not. I think we do get a little picture when we see the resurrected Jesus. After the resurrection, he still had an earthly body that could or could not be recognized, whichever. He still bore in his physical body the marks of crucifixion. Remember that? Revelation chapter 5, and I looked, and there in the midst of the throne was a lamb as it had been slain. That's Jesus. He could still be felt, reach, and touch my wounds. He could still eat. I'm hungry. Give me something to eat. Then we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection. And I, I'm, I'm going to finish with this. I want you to just sit back and let God's word wash over you. This is where we are headed. This is the transformation for which we wait. Why are we focused on earthly stuff? 1 Corinthians 15. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first of many to come who, have, who are asleep or dead. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Each to his own order. Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ's, who belong to him at his coming. 
at his coming, which is why we keep our eyes fixed heavenward. We're not looking at his stuff. That wasn't the word I was going to use. Around here, we're keeping our eyes fixed on heaven, awaiting Jesus' return. Well, someone will say rather sarcastically, well, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? That's the question, right? What are we to be transformed? He says, you fool, to these sarcastic questioners, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and each of the seeds of a body of its own. All flesh is not the same. There is the flesh of men, there's another flesh of beasts and birds and fish. There are heavenly and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is is different. You're going to be transformed. This earthly glory, gone. There's one glory of the sun, another Glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Stars differ from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, this is what's going to go. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I'm going to go down to Greenville, South Carolina, to visit my father uh, tomorrow, who's likely in the last days. And he's been suffering with Alzheimer's and cancer, and, and, and he just can hardly move. And that body is going, and something better waits. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, that's why we look heavenward, the last, we're listening, trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality, and when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory our Lord Jesus Christ. Something better awaits. So my brothers and sisters, this is how Paul starts this passage. Brothers and sisters, this is a vocative term. Brothers and sisters, don't focus on earthly things that are bound to decay. We fix our eyes on heaven awaiting the return of Christ we, we long to depart and be with Jesus, which is better by far. And along the way, we follow others and together encourage others to follow us. If for me to live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, our um, prayer 
today is that you would help us be help us to refocus to take our eyes off the things around us that so easily distract us that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on heaven every once in a while we hear that dumb saying that's unbiblical you're so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good would you make us so heavenly minded that we would be of no earthly good as we fix our eyes on Christ and await his return, the Lord and the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.